thank you for coming and joining us here again. This is the Art of Mindful Medicine. Uh, I appreciate your time and, and attention to, to this talk. This is something I've been, uh, today's conversation is one that I've been looking forward to for a few months uh, with Dr. David McCarty. And as always, I'm going to give you a little uh, brief intro as to who, who Dave is. And I do want to start off by just saying some of the hats that he wears. Uh, so Dave is a, a patient-centered sleep medicine specialist and an award-winning educator, author, cartoonist, and podcast host. So that is a very dynamic uh, myriad of, of talents right there. So, uh, but to get, to get more official, let's, let's get into Dr. Dave McCarty as a board-certified specialist in sleep medicine and a pioneer in the practice of patient-centered care for those who suffer from sleep disorders. He's passionate about empowering individuals with knowledge, which restores confidence and personal agency. This passion has made him an award-winning educator who guides each patient as they navigate the landscape of disease and wellness within an increasingly fragmented healthcare system. Dr. McCarty is, all, is the co-creator of Empowered Sleep Apnea, an, in, an innovative cross-platform educational project combining storytelling, cartooning, scientific rigor, and quite a bit of fun, uh, definitely quite a bit of fun, uh, all in the name of helping individuals and providers navigate the fascinating but complex disorder known as sleep apnea. So Dave, thank you so much for being on here with us today. And uh, I'm, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. Of course. And I always like to start these conversations with gratitude. So if you could please tell us three things that you're grateful for today. Wow. Well, let me think. Shouldn't have to go too far. I woke up to a beautiful blue sky here in Boulder. I was grateful for that. I'm finding myself grateful for the smaller things, you know, with what's going on in the world. So I was very grateful for my hot shower and I was very grateful for my wife and my two dogs this morning. Beautiful, beautiful. Um, so I always like to start talking about you, uh, but this, this topic of, of sleep apnea is just becoming such a, a huge part of the conversation to, in the general population and, and in the medical system. So um, many people have heard the phrase sleep apnea and sleep disordered breathing and all these things, um, but they don't really have an understanding of what it means. So will you just kind of create some, clear, some clarity as to what sleep apnea is and how prevalent it really is in our society? I think it's a great way to start the conversation because this is exactly why the Empowered Sleep Apnea Project is where it is today is that we are trying to find a way to talk about something that's incredibly complex. So I, I often, when I'm discussing this beast, I often refer to it in my writing as uh, you know, capital sleep, capital apnea in italics. And I, because it's sort of a term that's thrown around so much that it means different things to different people at this point. And the language and the different silos of thought, all who have a seat at the table for how this is managed and thought about, have kind of divergently evolved in terms of their language. You know, the way we talk about this in an airway-centered dentistry practice is very, very different than the way this problem is discussed in a standard Western medical model, you know. And because the language is different, these silos can no longer really hear each other and they can't communicate with one another. And so what happens in the real world is that a patient who maybe gets dissatisfied with um, the way their their case is handled or unfolded in the silo they're in, if they cancel and walk, and you know, to Western medical, this translates to 50 to 70% compliance on CPAP, right? The other side of that is the negative space. Where do these people go? And you know, I've paid a lot of attention to those folks that are left behind. So when those people leave and they're in between the silos, it's very difficult for them to know what to believe because everybody seems to be selling something at that from that vantage point, you know. And once you get inside another, maybe an established airway centered dentistry practice where they have a, a method of doing things, things can feel a little more reassuring, but you might not find that place. Or you might fall into the hands of someone who is just sort of trying to print money by by giving everybody the same treatment over and over again. And that, you know, the one size fits all solution doesn't work in this problem because again, it's too complex. So if we're going to, with that as a, I guess, a prologue, right? What is sleep apnea? Sleep apnea, technically, if you want to look at Western medical's lens on this, it can be defined by a certain number of abnormal interruptions in breathing during sleep. Um, 
in another lens, it's a functional and uh, structural problem of breathing that is present 24 seven. You know, so it kind of depends how we're going to talk about this. And, 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 you know, this divergence of language is one of the reasons why I have to do this project. So when I talk about sleep apnea in the book, I'm talking about that whole spectrum of disrupted, interrupted breathing during sleep. And this, the reason this is such a complex subject is that just that notion, there are two flavors of sleep apnea, you know. There's obstructive sleep apnea and there's central sleep apnea. There are different flavors of interruptions. Obstructive sleep apnea is when you're breathing in and the airway is too close together or it blocks. So you kind of choke on your own airway. That, there are gradations of those types of obstructive events. Central sleep apnea, completely different kettle of fish, right? This is, you can think of it physiologically as the, the pause in breathing that would follow a heavy sigh during the day. Like we've all experienced that, take a big heavy sigh and then you're not breathing for 20, 30 seconds. You don't have to. So what happens in central sleep apnea is when sleep is fragmented, if people have periodic arousals from sleep, they might find themselves over breathing during that arousal, like a big heavy sigh. And then when they fall back to sleep, there's a pause in their effort to breathe. It doesn't, it's a physiology of sorts, you know? And the reason central sleep apnea happens, again, there's many different reasons for it. But the way we categorize these problems is we've taught people to think that you either have one or the other and that a treatment exists for if you have one or the other that there's a specific treatment for that and we're losing sight of the fact that these are complex multi-dimensional problems each of these two physiologies now when we accept the fact that nobody gets one or the other everybody gets a little smattering of both you know, how much? Well, that's an individual thing. And so then we get this idea that, wow, that's really complex. Now we're going to couch that in the notion that when you have a sleep disordered breathing problem, your symptoms are going to be nonspecific and they're going to overlap with other diagnoses. Wow. It's like, you know, I call this the big Leviathan. You know, in one of my cartoons is a big giant sea monster, like this Lovecraftian beast. And then there's this submarine that's about this big next to this huge beast. And and the, the, the catchphrase is, we're gonna need a bigger fleet, you know? So very true. Hope I hope that does a, a little bit towards answering that very complex question. What is sleep apnea? Yeah, no, no, that that's a great intro and and just even though you eloquently describe these things, um, when you talk about it and when you write about it, it just from people listening, they, I hope, can gather that it is a much more complex issue, as you say, than just this or that, or mm -hmm. just putting you into one box versus another box. Yeah, most people overlap quite a bit. And, and when you have that degree of um, I, uh, precision is needed. Uh, the, the catchphrase that's coming up in pioneers that are thought leaders in this field are we need precision medicine for this because the label has become such a such a large thing and it encompasses such a large spectrum that the label itself doesn't mean anything anymore. You know, you can't say you have sleep apnea, therefore you need a CPAP machine. That logical pathway does not exist because sleep apnea means different things to different people. And maybe what you as an individual need is to start learning to breathe through your nose and stay off your back. Maybe that would be the best plan for you. But you know, we have to talk about it. And in order to have that discussion um, in a way that makes sense across silos is we all have to kind of have a language that we can share and embrace and learn from one another, you know? So um, that's, what, that's what this curriculum is designed to do. It's designed to be something that's friendly, no matter what environment you're in, you can use it as a, as a language that bonds you to your patient and helps them along on their journey. Awesome, yeah, no, the, this patient-centric focus is really important, uh, but I also love that you're also focusing on the practitioners because as difficult as it is for patients to have to deal with the, like what, a diagnosis or, or the condition, whatever it is, it's also really challenging for physicians and dentists to kind of approach these things because it is so specific to the individual mm -hmm. and we're, we're so, so dynamic in our habits and the way we are and just how consistent we are with things. So th that's one of the things that really attracted me to, to your approach, which we're going to talk, we're going to talk more about, but thank you for that, that great intro. I hope people uh, can really see what, what this is all about now or, or, or in summary anyways. Um, but 
really I, to start, I want to zoom out and go kind of go yeah. big picture on, on you. So you're a physician, a musician, <laughs> a cartoonist, podcaster, and more. Um, very dynamic resume, um, which I love. And if you would kind of draw a picture with your words for us and, and maybe walk us through a bit of your life journey. Uh, where do these passions that you have stem from and how have they made you into the man you are today? Wow. That's a thank you. Uh, that's a tough question. Um, the cartooning is, I think, a good place to start. And uh, that's just been kind of my my dirty habit, you know, um, <laughs> all through school. I, I, I have a post on my Facebook page about, you know, one of the schools I graduated from was the school of torn up homework assignments because, you know, my teachers didn't sometimes <laughs> understand, especially the, when I was in younger grades. You know, I kept it hidden when I got older. But when I'm listening to things, I'm always doodling and I'm always drawing. And um, that turned into sort of a, you know, whenever I gave a card, it would always be something that I made. So it was something that was a valuable part of my self-expression, but it was always something that I kind of kept in my back pocket. And I, I was a little ashamed because I never went to art school. I'm not a real artist, quote unquote. So I was always a little embarrassed that, I, you know, I couldn't draw as well as you know, someone else. Um, but in the journey of this book, I, I realized early on that what I was really trying to do was find a way to teach people about this disease in a way that would assuage the suffering of falling in between the silos. I didn't have the language for it at the time. I just knew that that was what I was trying to do because the people that would come to me in my clinic, you know, I, I had a long list of people who would just sort of show up because finally someone told them, hey, this guy listens to you, you know, so go see him. So these are people that have been left behind by some steamrolling system that put them on a really expensive machine and then cranked up the pressure too high when, you know, it was just one example after another of someone who got into an environment where they really thought about this in a very simple way. We have one tool for this, boom. And then when that tool doesn't work, you just turn it up, you know? So I saw people who had dental devices go wrong. I saw people who had CPAP machines go wrong, you name it. So I really wanted to teach them how to manage this. And when I started trying to write this down in a standard textbook, it just, it was terrible, Seth. I mean, it was just so bad. And I couldn't figure out why. And and I, so I really had to sort of take a step back. And I, and I said, well, you know, when I teach this to my patients in clinic, it always works. So the curriculum that I'm talking about is what ended up being part one of the book. And it's the part that talks about helping the patient deconstruct their narrative, helping them understand the many moving parts of sleep apnea. That that's opens up the engineering mindset so that we can start talking about these various treatment ways that we can get, get them across uh, to, to the treatment territory. Anyway, I didn't have any of that language then. All I knew is that I, if I taught people this, they always did better and they were always more satisfied. And I thought maybe we have to get this captured in conversation, you know? So uh, I called up my friend, Ellen Stothard, who is um, a PhD in integrative neuroscience, and she's made her career about sleep. And she was the director of, uh, of research at the, at the clinic where I was working. And I said, look, will you take a chance and do something conversationally with me? I, I thought maybe this has to be captured in flight. You know, Maybe there's something about the dynamics of talking through it that makes it accessible. And she said, sure, I'll give it a try. And so, you know, I'd never done podcasting before. I'm an amateur musician. And so I, I was familiar enough with recording software to get in there and know what I was doing. And uh, we actually had several false starts. So we were gonna do this kind of like a standard talk through. But somewhere along the line, uh, after several false starts, I realized that this had, be, this had to sort of take on something much more dynamic. So I was gonna start with a story. And the story I decided to start with was actually inspired by true events. This was a man who um, had been kind of treated the system in the way the system does, where he was sent to one specialist and they, they sniffed out he might have sleep apnea. So they kind of sent him to the sleep clinic and he just felt manhandled and he felt like he was like somebody was trying to sell him something. And so by the time I met him in my capacity as the medical director of this facility, he was hopping mad and was actually like, he was, calling the medical board and was going to report us for collusion with these other doctors because he didn't have any problems with his sleep. He never told anyone about his sleep. And now here we are trying to sell him a machine. And so, you know, this was sort of all the backstory on, on the charting when I walked into this hot mess on a Friday afternoon. And so I'm the, I'm the guy who's supposed to call and help 
calm this guy down. And so this is when I sat down and I'm like, well, okay, so this is going to be a discussion about the reasons to treat sleep apnea. Let me just sit down for a moment. I'm, my hands are shaking. I'm scared. This guy's hopping mad. And so I wrote, I wrote them down and they're in the order that they are on, on the project. The, the reasons are risk, snoring, sleep, wake, and comorbidities. Okay. So those are the five reasons. So I just got on the telephone with him. And the first thing I did with Rob, with the guy who inspired Robert is I asked him a question and I said, Robert, are you satisfied with your sleep? And he said, yeah, because he was mad. He was still defensive. And, and, and cause he'd never said word one about his sleep. That's the thing. This was suspected because he had a fib. Okay. And so somebody did an overnight pulse ox and it was abnormal. And so next thing he knows he's in a sleep clinic. And next thing he knows, he's being told he has this disease and then he has to put this thing on his face. And he was in high gear, like, no, sir, you know, you guys are selling me something big pharma. Like this is what his entire attitude was. So we sat down and, and he initially said, yeah, I'm satisfied. And I said, okay, okay. So that, let me just clarify. That means that when you go to bed, you fall asleep easily and sleep is deep and continuous and you, and you sleep through the night and when you wake up you feel refreshed and during the day you feel effortlessly uh, awake he goes well no 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 that's not it at all you know actually and then he's, we started to get into it and it turns out he's getting up two to three nights times a night to urinate he has trouble on the front end getting to sleep he is always sleepy in the daytime he can't watch movies because he's always drifting off so when we got into it and we realized Oh, okay. There are some sleep wake complaints. Now let's go back and let's talk about what we found in the study. And when, then we went through the whole five reasons to treat discussion. This took about an hour. Okay. It took him a, about an hour to go from wanting to file a lawsuit to being fully on board and understanding where we were going and why. Okay. And that was the five reasons to treat discussion. So now getting back to why does this have to be in a cartoon? Okay. So when we were going to present this curriculum, we realized that it was unlistenable if we presented it as here's what you need to know, you know? So we decided um, at some point early on, we looked at each other and said, you know, I think it has to be fun. And that was like a new lens. It went a click and I'm like, fun. So what's fun? What was the last time I remember looking at a book and like just staring at it and wanting to know more. And it took me all the way back to like eight years old, Peter Pan illustrated edition with the, the picture of Neverland as the frontispiece, okay, the, the island. And I thought, you know, I used to stare at it, the, you know, the, the Pirate's Cove and the X and, you know, the skulls, all this stuff was awesome. I, and when I read the book, I would sometimes go back and look at the map, you know? So I was thinking, what if we had a map for sleep app? Like getting through this is a bit of an adventure. What if we just had a, and then I'm like, what if we made a map? That was the, that was the moment when everything changed. As soon as I went home that night, I drew the Isle of Sleep Apnea. And that's a dad joke in itself, Isle of Sleep Apnea. You get it? So I drew the Isle of Sleep Apnea, and I brought it back, and I showed it to Ellen, and I said, I think we can build something around this. And so she said, let's go for it. And so from there, it became this rabbit hole adventure that Robert kind of gets sucked in. You know, the episode three is that night Robert had a dream, and then he finds himself on this island. And so now we're actually navigating in real time and he goes to the coffee hut. He goes to the five reasons monument, you know, so he has these adventures and now I'm not instructing anymore. Now I'm just like revealing how awesome it is to see the complexity and it's, and it happened in this very zany way. So once, once we got that worked out for the, for the flavor of the podcast, the book just started to happen, you know, and I decided that the whole thing needed to elicit dopamine. The, the reason this was hard to teach is that um, complexity is scary. You know, these terms are jargony. No one likes to feel like they're dumb. And so when people are introduced to jargon too quickly, they shut down because they're, they, they think that you're insulting them and they think that you're calling them dumb because they don't understand and that you're talking too fast. And no one can articulate that in real time. Instead, they sit there and they shut down and then they don't learn anything. That's the way most medical education happens. So I decided that if I was gonna put any of this into a document, that document had to elicit dopamine when you picked it up. So, you know, again, if it's not fun, it's no fun. So I call this book, the book is called Empowered Sleep Apnea, a handbook for patients and the people who care about them. I'll show what it looks like here. So you can kind of see, 
It's mm -hmm. big, you know, it's bulky. I wanted it to be like, I was thinking of Shel Silverstein, you know, um, where the sidewalk ends, how that was huh. never published in softback. It was always a hardback white book. And when you pick it up, the book just makes you feel good by holding it because you know you know what's in it and it's reassuring and it's strong you know so that's what i wanted i wanted on the cover is this mm -hmm. beautiful image of this happy empowered bee <laughs> just flying to the stars on 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 the joy of knowledge you know and as soon as i realized that's where we're going then the cartooning just happened you know each podcast episode i would draw a cartoon of something that i was trying to work through and I realized that the cartoons became such a valuable tool at chipping away at these very prickly subjects, you know, because let's face it, when I'm teaching people about sleep apnea, I'm, I'm, there's a part of that message that says, you're not doing it right. You need to do it this way. Whenever you're teaching someone, that's the inherent message. If, you know, if I'm giving you something new, so there must be something that's deficient about you. So there's always a sort of like, I don't know that I want to listen to you yet you know yeah and and one of the prickly subjects is we're all doing it wrong you know because we're missing out on the negative space of the people that fall outside of our silos and i had a hard time finding my way to that language um and one of the first things that that got me towards talking about it was a cartoon there's a cartoon that was featured in the podcast that um there, it, um it's uh called a simple question part one and in the cartoon, it's, it says, let's, why do you have sleep apnea? It's kind of the first question you asked me, what causes, what, what is sleep apnea? And I said, let's ask around. And so here's my character, Claudia, who's sitting in all these different environments and all these different people from different silos are like, oh no, it's caused by this. You know, it's caused by floppy airways. It's because of the obesity epidemic. No, it's because your airway's too small. You got to have your tonsils out. You know, and everyone just seems to be like really sort of getting in his business with their silo. And at the end, the final image, this the final image is what made me draw this, is because the patient ends up feeling like they're under threat and he's got a target on his chest when he's checking in and he's just looking like he's stunned in the gun sights. And so that was the image that made me draw that cartoon because I'm like, this is how it feels for our patients, but why? And so having drawn that cartoon, now I can take a step back and say, this isn't one provider's fault, one greedy provider who's stamping out too many rubber things. This isn't one bad actor who just is a CPAP slinger and, and a single mic. This is a problem of systemic fragmentation. And talking about that, wow, you know, um, it's hard to get professionals to own up that there may be something wrong with the system that they're in, you know? So that language in itself, finding it was kind of miraculous in this journey. You know, again, the cartoons opened it up for me. The cartoons were the doorway to get into some very prickly subjects. Yeah, it, it's, I can relate to a lot of those things, but the, the, this last part, the, the creativity aspect really, I mean, helps draw people in. Like just what you were saying about the book. I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of hardcover books also. I, I mean, it, there's just something, like you said, they're just sturdy. Um, and I, I don't know, maybe I'm biased towards textbooks because that's just what, what I've had to look at for so much of my life um but the real the the main thing that sticks out to me and what you were just talking about is that focus on the patient and that compassion with the individual that's sitting in front of you um really leads that person to appreciate being listened to because you, you're treating them like a human mm -hmm. and until you reach that kind of or even some level of connection like that we're not going to be able to communicate no matter what kind of language we're, we're using and that that's really what that's why your message really sticks with me because i can relate to that and that, that's the first thing i try to do like i just sit in front of people like hey how are you mm -hmm. and, and just like talk to people like they're an actual person yes. <laughs> you know and it's so important and people really appreciate it i can't tell you i'm sh i know this has happened to you and people just will verbally say wow I've, i really appreciate that i'm actually being listened to yeah isn't it shocking? And, and, and one, one is tempted to sort of point the finger and say, ah, oh, it's the modern world or you doctors are too busy looking at your computers. And it's much more complex than that, obviously. Um, there are so many pressures upon the providers that are operating in today's world. You know, just to pay, you have to document this, 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 and this in this way and this click on the medical record. Um, 
it, it's a it's a very difficult situation to navigate. And as a result, I think some of the more humane aspects of care can get algorithmically lost, you know, um, because it's just part, you know, you have to be in and out in 15 minutes. So we have to document compliance in order to make sure that your CPAP gets paid for. So I have to ask you these questions. So there's really not a lot of time to be a human being in that, you know. Um, because of that, I think many folks who are kind of practicing in fields adjacent to sleep have never really kind of learned the full extent of how big this beast can be because you know their their experience with it has been limited to that small keyhole that small bit of the puzzle every time and it's as we talked about it's so large and uh, if people are uh, feeling um, empowered to engage in the conversation you learn a lot more as a provider too you know um, is now the right time to sort of talk about like like the meat of the empowered sleep apnea project are two a patient-centered five-point mnemonics and you know I just want to give them a shout out because this Go is really what, so you know the first mnemonic is the five reasons to treat I already alluded to that that's that's the grounding zone sort of the the timeout you can think of it as a surgical timeout where everybody in the OR goes okay hands up which leg is coming off today you know and everyone agrees and then they make sure they mark the right leg you know the reason they do that is because people got the wrong leg chopped off too many times, you know? And so, you know, the five reasons to treat discussion is, okay, here's this label, guys. Let's talk about why we're gonna do something about this. Let's get into it. And the, the, the first reason, risk, is not a simple discussion at all, okay? <laughs> it is a very, very difficult discussion. And so most people don't do it because it's too hard. And so in the interest of time, they say, well, sleep apnea, oh, they'll, they'll default to a label that's meaningless, mild, moderate, and or severe. And those labels are meaningless um, because there's too much complexity and the, and the number doesn't say it all. Or they'll, they'll say with a blanket statement, well, sleep apnea can increase your risk of stroke and heart attacks and cancer and all-cause mortality. And so you should use your whatever treatment I have on offer. And once again, that risk isn't the same for everybody. You know, if someone has a central apnea predominant problem, because up here in the mountains, we see that, you know, then an AHI of 40 is a different animal altogether than if you're a 350 pound person living in, you know, at sea level who has primarily obstructive events, even though the AHI number might be the same. So those two people need to be treated differently. Okay. I think everyone would agree to that, you know, concept. But the, the thing is that everyone needs this discussion. And so, you know, in the example I just gave you, central apnea phenotype in the mountains, you know, the risk of that is unknown, okay? We really don't know what that's going to do to someone's long-term survival. Um, all of the data that we have for sleep apnea and survival are based on samples that were primarily obstructive pathology, and they're all done at sea level, you know? So the, the, all of the sort of volume knobs that you can turn up on the moving parts for central sleep apnea, they just weren't in that population. The older that you get, the more cardiovascular disease that you get, the higher altitude that you're at, the more likely it is that your AHI number is going to be influenced by central apnea physiology. And that changes the way we should be talking about risk, right? So anyway, that's a brief introduction to the five reasons to treat. On the other side of the island, I have what's called five-finger approach mountain, okay? Because the truth is, no matter what we're talking about, it could be something other than the airway. Okay, so, you know, I'm tired. I'm not sleeping well. Um, it could be something other than the airway. There's a million ways to screw up your sleep. Most of them haven't even been thought up yet. So we have to have a way for people, for providers and patients to work together to do some sleuth work. Okay, so the five finger approach is based on a paper that I wrote back in 2010. And anybody can find this on the internet. It's in the Journal of Clinical Sleep Medicine. So just Google five finger approach sleep and it'll be your first hit. And the PDF is actually free. So that's kind of cool. Um, and basically it guides pe people through a way to unpack someone's sleep wake complaints. Okay, so it starts with the patient's narrative. So again, we go back to that story about Robert and we say, well, what, you know, if it's not if you're not satisfied, then why not? We, when we established, you know, hard to get to sleep, frequent awakenings, sense of light stage, non-restorative sleep, multiple times to the bathroom, and persistently non-restorative sleep with daytime impairment. 
Those were his sleep-wake complaints, okay? So once we start with that narrative, now we can go to the five-finger approach and we could say, well, what could be contributing to this? Let's look for actionable items, you and me, okay? And the five, five fingers are circadian misalignment is first, and that's the one that's hardest to talk about, kind of like risk in the five reasons to treat. So I put it first. Talking about circadian misalignment, social jet lag. This is when the opportunity for sleep is uh, delayed because of environmental influences like light, you know. Um, really, after the sun goes down, we are biologically prepared to see firelight only, okay, orange. But if we're doing stuff other than that, like these electric lights that I'm looking at right now, we're looking at our phones, you know, that's not something we're biologically prepared for. And so it tricks our brains into thinking the sun's still up and that delays the sleep phase. And that can do some crazy things to your ability to fall asleep at night and your ability to get up in the morning, which will lead to crazy and maladaptive behaviors, okay? Breaking apart uh, circadian misalignment for people means actually teaching them a little bit about circadian biology, okay? And that's really cool. It's not scary, although a lot of providers are afraid of it because, again, there's a lot of jargon. And thinking about time as a circular element, okay, circular time, not linear time, is kind of difficult because it circles back on itself. So for that reason, I, I made some fun things to get people through that learning without realizing that it's scary. And so the book has something, and, the, and this is actually free on the website too, something called the circadian rhythmo wheel. And I, I, I liken it to kind of a decoder ring, like it's a, like a Cracker Jack toy. It's something cool to look at. And it actually can help you kind of understand which direction light will move your circadian rhythm. Most importantly, it, it's a tool for providers to teach their patients about the importance of these things and how it all works. Because once that light bulb goes on, you know, that ding, oh, I get it now. And then these instructions we give for cognitive behavioral therapy, you know, we give crazy instructions to people with insomnia. You know, have you heard of CBTI, cognitive behavioral therapy, for instance? Mm -hmm. Okay, so the, the upshot is um, you tell people, uh, they, there are several techniques, one of which is called sleep restriction therapy, another is called stimulus control therapy. So th think about this, somebody comes to you and is desperate, doc, I can't sleep. And then the doc goes, well, just be in bed for six hours then, Sonny. That's sleep restriction therapy. And you know, that's what sometimes happens is that people sort of, they, they, they turn it into a checklist of what to tell people to do. And then people are like, are you insane? <laughs> it's like, you know, what's the matter with you? I'm nutritionally deficient. We'll just eat less. You know, yes. that's, you know, it's like, what's the matter with you? And so sleep restriction therapy only makes sense when people understand why it works, okay? Sleep restriction therapy is there to give you more sleep pressure. It's there to break the bad habits so that you can talk yourself out of these cognitive associations with sleep onset insomnia. It allows for the, for the chronotherapy, the backing up of the sleep uh, interval to work, you know? So um, once people are familiar with that, you know, it's as if it's the difference of, you know, we're in a dark cave and I'm like, okay, I'm gonna illuminate this line from here to there. I want you to walk that way. That's the safe way, go, you know? And patients are like, what? Uh, and they don't know if they want to follow your directions. It's dark. You know, they, they if they stumble, they can't find their way back. You know, so instead, what we should be doing is installing some overhead lights and then showing them the nooks and crannies and saying, that's over there, that's over there, that's over there. We need to think about that. And then the patients can be part of the team, you know, then they can participate in part of the problem solving. It's like so, allowing them to get their bearings on, on the situation that they're in. You're kind yeah. of giving them coordinates to different things that are going on. And that, and that allows agency. And I think that's the difference between here, here's what you do, and here, here's what's around, let's talk. You know, um, going back to, to what you said about how you need to listen. You know, so this gets back to um, uh, a field that's called sense making of complexity. There are actually people out there who study complexity and how to, how to navigate it. You know, and this isn't something they teach us in medical school. You know, in medical school, they teach us Occam's razor, you know, yeah. find the one simple solution that unites it all. This goes back to, you know, the days of Osler when people were dying and they had all these different symptoms and all of a sudden you realize, oh, they had renal cell carcinoma. That connected all of it. Wow, that's genius when you can figure that out. But that's not the way it works 
in chronic overlapping systemic problems where everything is bi-directionally related. That is a complex situation, not a simple solution. And when we're trying to solve or delve in a complex uh, decision-making space, top-down management styles, meaning do this because I said, do not work. They fail. And this is, this is just something that is known and understood in the sense-making of complexity literature. Why would it be any different in a clinical environment? So what, the, the two things that are necessary for people to collaborate together, because words are very crude objects, you know, it's a crude tool to get a, a, a sensation of complexity across, is that those two human beings need to share an understanding of the problem and they need to actually trust one another, okay? And um, it's those two things that I was shooting for with with these um, these two clinical tools, these five-point tools, is that they allow that cross-collaboration and, um, and it allows a shared understanding of the complexity of the problem that the doctor and or the, the provider and the patient can share. And that's kind of unusual in today's navigational space. You know, we have so little time. Normally it's do this because I said, and if you don't, these are the consequences and usually it's some sort of adverse health thing. So you come away from that experience feeling browbeaten, not, you know, not collaborated with, you know? Yeah, no, I, I love that approach of collaboration. Uh, and thank you for going through all that. That's, I mean, it, it's so complex. And that's why I think it's so great with the podcast and the book that I really encourage people to direct, I try and direct them to that because you really have fun and, and really take people through these concepts. Uh, so, we're talking a lot about clinical practice and obviously you were a clinical practitioner for a long time and a educator like we had talked about before but why did you stop practicing clinically so i i this would have been um may of 2021 okay um this was sort of the aftermath of covid so we were starting to get back into work again and go back to the clinic and um the ops tempo at, at my um, clinic was heating up. Um, more and more people were needing care. And I was having this same scenario come up again and again and again. You know, you start, and I guess I'll cut to the chase. I was feeling disempowered, okay, at this stage of the journey because I could see I was booking out months and months in advance now because people were desperate to get in my clinic because, you know, again, people heard that I would listen to them and all this. And the the, the problems that I would encounter would always require the same curriculum, you know, and if, as long as I taught that to them and we went through, the, you know, the empowering curriculum that eventually made it into the book, and then their, their journey would be different. It would be completely different. They could turn around. They could completely be saved. And, you know, I, I call this, this is the thing that I couldn't unsee. You know, I knew that this knowledge carried the power of this kind of like existential salvation within this broken system. And so uh, uh, we, um, at that moment in our, uh, my married life, we became empty nesters. So my kids are in college and we decided that the time was right to downsize our home. And so that allowed us a little bit of financial wiggle room so that I could step away from my, my earning and sit down and try and figure out how to teach this to people. And so, you know, the, the compulsion was very strong. I knew I had to get this down on paper because it mattered. And that was why I was so disappointed when the first iteration, you know, it didn't even make it to a full book. I think I didn't make it past chapter two ever. I would write the introduction and I'd start getting into the chapter formatting and I'd start hammering away at chapter one. And by the time I got to the end of it, I'm like, this is garbage and I hate it and no one will read it. And I just knew it, you know? <laughs> yeah. And so it was with all of that, you know, I guess you can understand my heartache. I quit my job to do this. I had to figure something out. And I think that was the pressure that sort of broke through the membrane of what platform can I use? Well, it doesn't matter anymore. I got to get it out there somehow. So it pushed me into um, kind of a new zone creatively. And for that, I'm very grateful. This has been highly rewarding. You know, I've learned so much. Yeah. And, and uh, well, first of all, thank you for, for doing those things. And I mean, th th that kind of empowerment or disempowerment that, that leads you to 
or inspires you to want to empower others is something that I can relate to. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I'm having this conversation with you right now is to just be able to share messages exactly like what you just said and exactly like what you're doing with people that don't necessarily know they have access to this kind of information for free. And then, and then the the deeper you want to go into that, uh, into that rabbit hole, here's a great source for you to do so. Yep. The, the, the book would, you know, this is going to sound like a sales pitch because it is, I want people to buy the book because it's beautiful and it'll make your life better, but it's a great gift. You know, this for, for providers, this is a great thing to have in the waiting room because it, it opens the door and people will, they'll pick it up and then their faces will light up and then they'll start reading about it. And next thing you know, you're having the five reasons to treat discussion and it's, and it's making sense. And suddenly, wow, things are different now. You know, now you're not, you know, pushing this idea of sleep apnea and selling a product. Now we're breaking it apart in favor of the patient. Yeah. And everybody can feel the difference with that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that that's exactly what my, th- I mean, I'm going to have it in, in the, the, the waiting area. Uh, so there's so many things to, that I want to touch on with you. Uh, we talked about a few different types of the, the, two main types of sleep apnea and we're talking a lot about sleep and but i don't think people really understand that as as a whole why sleep is so important and i love the example that you actually use in the podcast with the cleaning service yeah yeah. you could just kind of walk through that real quick as to why sleep is so important for sure that's a great question so this you know this goes back to the teaching of how sleep works and the truth is the science is just fascinating. So um, when we're awake, what I described to you is, is called the two-process model of sleep-wake regulation. That's the jargon. Um, the two processes um, basically means two different machines that sort of govern how we're awake and how we sleep. And the two machines are called process S and process C. So that's the jargon. Process S stands for the idea of this concept of sleep pressure. Okay, so imagine if your brain is an attic and the longer you're awake and the more active you are, the more fumes are going to build up in the attic. Right. And those fumes make you sleepy. And those fumes are actually they're chemicals and they're, they're called sleep regulating substances and they're breakdown products of inflammation and metabolism and things like that. So what you might expect for an effort driven enterprise. Right. The more you're awake, the more of it you get. And uh, and uh, those fumes build up in the attic. And then the, the thing is, as soon as you fall asleep, sleeping is like opening all the windows in the attic. So you get this beautiful cross breeze. And, and that's literally what's happening is you're getting, uh, there's a convective current that gets set up. This is physical chemistry, folks. So what happens when the brain is sleeping, when the electrical activity is sleep-like, the cellular confirmation of cells within the central nervous system changes so that more fluid is outside the cell membrane in the interstitial fluid. What that translates to is that there can be a a physical current that's set up from the cerebrospinal fluid through uh, the central nervous system tissue and then out through the venous drainage. Okay, So that is facilitated, by the way, by breathing. So this whole thing is like a cleaning service. Like you said, it cleans out all the funk and gunk and stuff. And um, it turns out that most adults need seven-ish to sort of get that stuff uh, uh, ventilated out from, from the waking day that preceded it. So that's an average, right? So imagine now that you are under more than usual physical or medical stress. Let's say you have sleep apnea, okay? And um, so the idea of, you know, building up this metabolic energy and you have to sort of get rid of it, you're not able to do that because the sleep itself is stressful. The sleep itself is making more fumes because it's kind of, it's causing stress and demand on the system. So then people understand that and they're like, oh, I get that now. Okay, I understand. Um, As people get older, you know, let's say you're 80 years old and you're not up doing much anymore. You sit for most of the day. You might not need seven hours of sleep anymore. So I've dealt with people who came in and, you know, I read Matthew Walker's book and I'm, it says here, I'm going to die if I don't sleep enough. I'm only getting six hours of sleep. And then you find out that they're not impaired with that. They feel like it's deep and fine sleep. 
that may be all they need at this stage of their life for the demands they're putting on their body, okay? So these are all things that can be talked about. And once the patient, once uh, individuals understand that the science isn't scary, it actually makes perfect sense. Um, suddenly these, these concepts can carry a lot more meaning. Yeah, no, thank you for that. That's um, really insightful. And I appreciate the explanation on, on how all that works because it's important to, I think, I find that the more we understand, the more likely we are to actually do something about these issues. Yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. Nobody wants to be told what to do. You know? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, no, actually nobody wants, everybody loves learning, but nobody really wants to be taught, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's just the truth. And um, so if we if we make the, uh, the information um, into something that is appealing, and enjoyable, then suddenly it's not teaching anymore. It's more like, um, I don't know, just showing you around. I, I don't know. It's a, it's a different headspace. And, mm -hmm. um, and it's been something that the concept of where are, where is the learner in their heads while we're doing this? That's been sort of my number one focus is what is it going to feel like to have this information dumped on me? Yeah. And, and these are all very, very complex topics, like we've been saying. And, and that's the word that, that's kept coming up. So there's a few few things that we've been saying. Complexity. Um, we've been talking about the healthcare system and how there's fragmentation and, and the silo concept. So you have basically a whole podcast about this, which I encourage people, again, to go listen to. But I want to ask you about it anyway. So um, you, I find that you have a unique approach to solving complex issues or at least approaching these issues. Uh, can you briefly describe your approach to complexity and explain why you refer to the current healthcare system as fragmented and what you mean by these different silos of thought? This is a great topic and it's a prickly topic and it's been was the hardest part of this um, journey to find language for. So the, the podcast episode is the first episode of um, the second season of Empowered Sleep Out Near the Podcast episode called Prologue. And, um, and that uh, was based on an essay that I wrote for my blog. Uh, and that essay was written because of the difficulty I was having in making um, real, uh, real uh, I would say, what's the right word? Empathic connections with people from silos different from mine. Uh, and part of this journey, uh, I learned kind of with a lot of introspection that the problem was kind of in, in the lens that I was carrying around. You know, um, uh, one has this belief uh, that what one is doing is right because one gets good results. And when you take that story and listen to how things feel in, in other practice environments, you start to realize there are pieces of the puzzle that you've been missing, you know? So, for example, one of the things that I've been... Um, very interested in is this notion that sleep apnea is getting increasingly reduced uh, to something that can be diagnosed by virtue of a number. You know, so you can wear a device and it can give you a number, an AHI, apnea hypopnea index. And if that number is over a certain amount, then you have this new label, you have sleep apnea, okay? And usually that number is 15. So regardless of other symptoms, if your number's 15 or higher, then you can get sort of stamped with that label. So here's the problem. Um, we have no idea, okay, what what this sort of little small fact is going to do, but I, I have a feeling it's going to be big because um, this goes back to a paper that was published by a group from Harvard in 2008. Um, the uh, first author, author was Pavlova, and um, this was a study of a large group of sleep studies on healthy people. So basically the group that they studied was adults in different decades of life, and they met the definition for no disease. So that meant they had an EKG lab work. They weren't on meds. They weren't obese. They weren't hypertension. They were well people. And when we got to the age group over the age of 65, over 50% of those well people with no sleep complaints had an AHI greater than 15. The average AHI was 20 something. Okay. So what are we going to do with this? This is the very inconvenient fact. Now, for the people selling for the people selling treatments and and stuff, 
you know, there may be some, oh boy, we've got a big market. And yes, look at all of this that we're, but there's a problem here because who's going to unpack that complexity for these seniors? You know, if that's central apnea physiology talking, then maybe we need to be having a different conversation. We shouldn't be guiding them towards CPAP. We should be starting to talk about, you know, let's teach you to breathe through your nose. Let's keep your mouth closed. Let's um, maybe have you descend to a lower altitude before we throw a machine at you, you know? Um, so if we're going to talk about that degree of complexity, then we have to come to an understanding that, well, we need a shared language. We need a language that you can speak in your dental office, that a, that a sleep adjacent chiropractor can, can also understand and speak, and that a standard medical doctor can speak. And if we don't, our patients are gonna be the ones that suffer. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's a hard fact for me to wrap my head around, and that's why I keep doing this um, and keep talking about it the way I do. It matters, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, and the, the concept of silos, uh, can you just touch on that as to- Yeah. So I guess the best way to explain this is, let's say you are um, a person who has a sleep complaint and I can't sleep at night and I'm tired and my husband tells me that I snore, okay? I'm a thin, fit female. You know instinctively that if you go to see your primary care doctor or your sleep physician, that they're probably going to offer you that CPAP machine that Uncle Bill uses, you know? And you really don't want that because you really don't believe in that. So now you're on the internet and you're finding these pioneering practices that are doing things differently. So you show up there and in that practice, everybody looks like you, you know, you don't see any big heavy people that are snoring chimneys, you know, big freight train. Those people all stayed in the, in the other silo. And so we start to see a divergence of reality. Okay. Same label, but when you're viewing it through the lens of an airway center dentistry practice, the patients are the ones who have been told by their doctor, you don't have sleep apnea because they're not desaturating. They've maybe been misdiagnosed uh, as depression when it was an airway issue all along. So there starts to be this culture of those guys don't know what they're doing. And th there's a, there's an embedded sense of um, I'm not going to listen to them anymore. And that's how silos become silos. You know, it's nobody chooses it. It happens because the way you see the world is different because the world sorts itself by, you know, willful intent. And so sometimes your reality is very different. And the people in that other silo don't see the world the way you do because they haven't seen those people. It's negative space. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and, and I think the danger happens when the silos become so separate that the language is so different that now they can't even, they can't even learn from each other's experience anymore because they've just gone and canceled each other. And that, that's actually what I've seen along this journey is a lot of providers, you know, they just can't hear what's happening outside their own little world because, you know, complexity is scary. They've worked out a system that makes sense of the complexity where they are. And so they can't hear what's happening out here. Um, but the problem is if the patient falls out and is no longer in your loving care or is in someone's practice where they've learned what you do and now they're doing it in an algorithmic way and they're not thinking about it, boom, 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 boom. That's where the trouble starts. And how yeah. do we talk about that kind of a systemic problem? Because it's nobody's, it's really nobody's fault, right? We're all doing the best we can um, because silos are not, doesn't make you a bad person. It makes you human, you know? That's exactly what I was gonna say. I mean, we're, we're human, right? And and I, I, I the people that that I know, um, whether we agree on everything or most things or not, it, it, we're still doing our best with what we have because we all have our own lives to live too. You know, mm -hmm. I, yeah. I mean, and that that is why these conversations are so important, and that's mm -hmm. why it's important to collaborate with not just like-minded people, but people that don't necessarily see the world from the same perspective or the same field or industry or, and we all have different experiences. And, and that's, I find that, you know, there's that, I, I can't remember who said it, but that quote that one, one teaches to learn mm -hmm. because when we dialogue about concepts that are very complex, we're going to get a differing of ideas based off of our different perspectives and experiences and, and just the things that we've encountered in life. Yeah. And the, the language that I've, sort of developed happened because of 
many, many, many conversations with people who habit, inhabit silos that are much different from mine. You know, and I, I might as well put a pitch in here. The, those conversations were facilitated, if not um, made possible by my relationship with my fellow musicians in our music group, the Pulmonauts, you know. Um, it sounds like such a, a silly thing to get so excited about. You know, we're just a bunch of aging, you know, uh, professionals playing in a garage band. But what happened in that musical journey? And just for listeners, we we played um, uh, a 10-song concert and then an after party at Collaboration Cures, which is a, a, a conference, a cross-pollination cross conference for airway-adjacent people in Orlando, Florida. And the miracle was that we all live in different parts of the country and we're not, you know, I don't read music. I'm a ear player. Most of the players are. So it's not like we could just sort of get the music and practice at home and get together and do it right. So we had to figure out a way to create um, a musical um, show and practice separately. And so what we did is we practiced twice together and we and we tape recorded those sessions. And then we, I put the, the, the recordings to make it sound like we were really playing in front of a crowd so that people could listen to it and they could experience it over and over again and get ready and sort of do the transitions, all these things that make a show happen. And when you know, it worked. And the beauty of this music project was that in the process, we learned to trust and love each other as as really kind of close friends. We call each other the Polmo family now. So we're like brothers and sisters, you know? And And I'm telling you, Seth, that enabled conversations that would never have happened. And it enabled me a, a look at a culture that is so different from mine that I sort of get it and I understand it now. And now I understand how to talk about some of these prickly issues in a way that doesn't make people upset because I know what they've been through, you know? So I don't know, I, I, have, I keep coming back to this, can music change the world? I mean, geez, this started as a simple project I was going to write my book and then everybody would know how brilliant I was. And that's not how it went down. This, this started that way. And I had to learn how to climb out of my silo to see that it, this is a much, much bigger beast than even I had imagined. And finding that language was something my pulmonauts helped me do, you know? Yeah, no, totally. I completely agree. And for people that um, want better visuals and understanding of this, I, I direct you again to the book and the podcast because it does a really fun job of kind of walking through these concepts. And I will say, I think I, I don't think I, I think you're being very humble about the the concert because that that's the last concert I was at uh, was with the Pomenots and nice. It, it was it was more than good. It it was really great. And um, not only was the music great, but the lyrics were hilarious as well. Yeah, so. we had some fun with it. And again, another another medium to help people see the complexity of this journey. You know, um, I think it's telling, this goes back to the music again, the Pulmonauts as a band, we were sort of the second iteration. The first iteration was a pickup band that played at another conference two years previous. James Nestor was actually their drummer, right? And the reason that band existed was because of this divergence of language. So my friend Tom Colquitt, who was on keyboards on, on this iteration too, he had written a parody of the song back in the USSR called Back in the UARS, okay? And it was because yeah. in, through his lens, he had seen so many people suffer because they had this kind of non-desaturating sleep apnea phenotype that, got, that, get, that gets blown off by standard sleep clinics. You know, oh, your, your pulse ox is normal and you're skinny. You can't have sleep apnea, goodbye. You know, and those those people are now outside the silo and they're trapped. And I thought it was interesting that the very first thing that created the pulmonary journey was this divergence in language. And um, it helped me understand why the pulmonary journey was so important, because it helps us talk through those language sticking points that in private conversations, when we're in our silos, we cannot get there. Music is a transcending language that gets us all out of our silos, you know, so. I found that compelling. I don't know, for some reason that, that echoes to me with portent. 100%, I, I, I've said this for several years, once I really started to uh, really find a, a love for music is that it, it's the language of the soul. Yeah, it's different. Yeah, and I, and I think that's why our friendships in the band are different and why the conversations were different. 
you know that that's a special relationship when when you can sort of blend like that as a band you know so um big shout out to my pulmonots out there i'm very grateful and uh, thanks for letting me talk about that. yeah yeah no for sure They're, you guys are great um so we're, we're coming towards the end here i just have a, a couple more questions that, and this is a good time to talk about something that you bring up on your on your website called shared consciousness yeah. um and can you just briefly describe to people what you, what that is and, and how Empowered Sleep Apnea Project is an attempt to develop this? What do you mean by, um, and why is it important to you, that, like shared consciousness? I, I, I stole that term from General Stanley McChrystal from his book, Team of Teams. And when he was trying to figure out a way to get his Joint Special Operations Task Force to work together in, in, in Iraq when they were battling Al-Qaeda in Iraq, um, he was trying to unite some pretty aggressive silos, the SEALs, you know, uh, the Army Spe or Air Force Special Tactics, Delta Force, and um, uh, I'm, I'm leaving one out. But they had to get all of these teams together, uh, and his idea was that they all had to understand the whole playing field. What was going on is that it, he likened it to having players on a soccer team that could only see two or three feet in front of them and they didn't know what the other players were doing and they had to follow orders yelled at them from the coach on the side of the field and you know even if you have Pele and, and Messi on your team you know they're not going to be a good team working together like that so a shared consciousness with regard to sleep apnea is sort of blasting apart this complexity in a way that you know we all can understand and that the real kicker is we have to include the patient on the team. We can't leave that person on the bench, you know, just because we're doctors or we're dentists and we know this, we can't just hold it in our heads and tell them what to do because they have to be part of that shared consciousness too. And once you realize that, then all of a sudden you realize how important the packaging of that knowledge is gonna be. You know, if you turn it into something beautiful, you might actually get away with teaching people something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Um, so we got a bit of an understanding of your inspiration behind all this. What What are your hopes now and moving forward for the Empowered Sleep Apnea Project? You know, I, it's sort of like a chicken in every pot. And, you know, I, I would like to see the blue book language in every discussion about why are we doing this? You mm -hmm. know, let oh, yeah, you know, I, I don't care where you learned it, you know, and Quite frankly, I don't care if you have my book. If you can have the conversation, that's all I care about. The book facilitates it because, you know, patients will pick it up and it allows them to have access to the party too. Um, but that's what I want is I want to change the conversation about sleep apnea in favor of the patient every single time. And if I can do that, then I will die a happy man. I, that's a that's a beautiful way to to come to a close on this. Um, I, I really appreciate that uh, that sentiment and the that uh, desire and, and the passion that you have for these things. So uh, thank you for that. It's it's great to to hear and listen to and watch you t speak about it. So my last question, and I always like to end with this, is if this were the last time you ever had to share your thoughts and you could only share three things that people should start implementing in their lives immediately to improve their health. What would they be for you? Breathe through your nose. Understand the five reasons to treat. And understand the five finger approach. You know, I really want to guide people to those two sense making of complexity tools because they are inherently patient-centered they always bring you back to the patient's narrative so it's mm -hmm. it's like a self-guiding train you know it, uh, so if i could leave people with the, those through like breathe through your nose this is a new thing for a lot of a lot of us mm -hmm. um thank you james nestor on my <laughs> on, on my island i i i knighted him you know and when I, I actually met i met james at uh at a meeting i was at in in mexico um earlier this month or last month and I, I i brought my book breath and i had him sign it and i drew a cartoon of him and i called him sir james and i gave it to him and i said you know it's my island i'm allowed to knight you <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure you got a kick out of that i think he did he, yeah. he, he's a he's a rock star though and i'm very grateful for the lens that he's been able to give a lot of people about the importance of functional breathing for sure yeah, and it was a great book. I, I definitely direct people to that book as well, Breathe. So, mm -hmm. um, so uh, 
Dave, thank you so much for, for coming on the Art of Mindful Medicine. I really appreciate it. Everybody watching, I highly encourage you to follow Dr. McCarty and Dr. Stothard on uh, their website, empoweredsleepapnea.com. The book that we've been talking about, Empowered Sleep Apnea, a handbook for patients and the people who care about them. Dave's blog called Dave's Notes uh, and the podcast, Empowered Sleep Apnea, the podcast. So um, really appreciate that. Are there any other uh, projects or ways that, that people can follow and, and stay in touch with you? You know, I've, I've got a lot of speaking engagements coming up. I'm going to the Greater New York uh, Dental Meeting uh, at the end of the month. I'll be going to um, uh, some other um, private, privately held meetings for orthodonture and dental aligned. And then I'm going to Airway Palooza in, in New Orleans this the next spring. So uh, stay tuned for all of those things. If you're going to those meetings, I'd be happy to meet you and sign your book if you have one. Um, and we have a new podcast episode that is in development um, in honor of our, our late Matthew Perry. I'm calling this one the one about crows. So, yeah. you know, you might you might notice I have a fascination with crows. I draw crows in, in some of my work. And so this is going to sort of get into why I'm so fascinated by crows. And we'll, we'll talk about what that has to do with the project. All right. Awesome. Thank you for that. Um, again, Dave, thank you so much for coming on here. I really appreciate it. Everybody, thank you for watching this episode of the Art of Mindful Medicine. I hope you've gained some insight and had a little bit of fun during this conversation. Uh, click all those like and subscribe buttons below. Share this episode. Please definitely share it with people um, that might not have a, a any understanding about sleep apnea or just the way we, we need to breathe because there's a lot of great resources from this man right here. So um, definitely direct you to all those things. You can see all past and future episodes and as, as well as this episode on my YouTube channel, The Art of Mindful Medicine, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all over the place. And then my website, of course, www.mindful.doctor. And I always like to end with a quote. And I think this is very um, relevant to this conversation. And it's from Alan Perlis. And he said, fools ignore complexity. Pragmatists suffer it. Some can avoid it. Geniuses remove it. Oh, I, and I would, I would maybe alter that and say, help unpack it. Because, yeah. you know, the complexity is always complex. And, I, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not thinking about what I'm doing as simplifying it, as sort of making it accessible because the complexity itself is beautiful. Mm -hmm. We just have to understand it, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Seth. Yeah. This thank you very great. much. Yeah, absolutely. Everybody, thank you. Have a great day and peace for now. Peace.